You guys remember a few years ago when I tripped falling up the stairs or tripped up the stairs and fell? I remember that too. It's a little scary right now. I was really thinking as I was coming up those steps right there. Mention to you that today is uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, a day where we remember and uh, ask you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. When you get to the book of Jeremiah, go to the very first chapter, very first verse. If you're using that pew Bible right there in front of you, it's on page 864 in the pew Bible. Jeremiah chapter 1, picking up in verse 1, and I will get there in just a few minutes. I'll start by, you know, our, our sermon series here lately has been, why? You know, the Lord is just creating this, and we're sort of just watching Him uh, unfold it over the, uh, the, the last few weeks. Well, today, how fitting it is that today we talk about why I, or why I believe God's Word says that we should be pro-life. Church, I'm pro-life. I believe that First Baptist as a whole is pro-life because we believe that all people are created by God and created in the image of God and therefore are in themselves a very great and valuable creation. I've shared in years past, and I remind you today, that being pro-life is not a single-issue decision. So many times when we talk about being pro-life, we take a stance, and that stance is communicated as abortion and being against it and hoping and praying that there will not be any. And, and the sanctity of human life does contain that element because our world contains that challenge. But being pro-life, to be a child of God, to be saved, and to have a personal relationship with Christ means that we need to be pro-life in every way that the Bible calls us to be pro-life, which means that we need to be pro-love. You see, we love babies. I love babies. Born and unborn. We love children. We love youth. We love single adults. We love marriages. We love families. We love senior adults. We love the lost, the saved. We love the broken, the hurting. And our lives should be lived in such a way that show that our lives are pro-life, pro-love to those that watch how we live. I don't think I've said this in at least 24 hours, but church, it matters how you Live. Amen? My goal, and hopefully your goal as well, is that First Baptist, individually and as families and as a body, will rise up and build what we find broken around us. And we will not be effective doing that unless we believe in the value of life, all life, in love. Unless we value people as God values them. Now, I've used this. I went back and, and I kept records, and I think it was 2018 is the last time I alluded to this, and, and I'm not going to take you into a. There is a 
sociological term and a financial term that is called the 2% rule. That means that 2% of a group of people, if they unite and rise up together, can share a common bond, and that bond will create an influence that can impact the other 98% of the people. Now, it's an interesting thing, because when you go look at census data, Bedford County, let's call it Shelbyville. Shelbyville's roughly, and I don't have the exact number, roughly 25,000 people. We have been averaging 400 or more, and all of a sudden, if you go, what is 2% of 25,000, a lot of you have already gotten right there, right? What is that, like 500? No. Yeah, it is. We, church, border on initiating the 2% principle in our community. Because when I go pick up my phone and when I send a text to my church family, everybody who's taken time to fill out the yellow sheets of paper and turn it in so that I can have you in my phone or in our email system, when I send that out, I send it currently out to 714 people. Yeah, that's a lot of people. And if we all show up at the same time, it's going to be a party. Now, not everybody on that list is as faithful as you. And some people, we rotate some. And I want to encourage you, be here every week. And I want to encourage those of you that aren't here, even though you can't hear me, be here every week. But when you look at the 2% rule, our church is large enough to represent at least 2% of the city of Shelbyville, which means based upon that financial term and that sociological term, our 2% influence, if we rise up together, pro-life, pro-love in our community to bring that brokenness together, we can make a difference. Church, I need you to understand that differences aren't made in mass. Differences are made and always have been made by small groups of people standing together, rising up, and letting their influence be made known. And God is building us for such a moment. If every single one of us sell out to Jesus and agree to build up what is broken near us, we'll impact this city. This means that you can make a difference. It means that we can make a difference. And here's my question before we go to Jeremiah. Do you want to make a difference? You see, we sit here on a day where we remember, but then tomorrow if we get up and don't remember, we've not really wanted to make a difference. We just wanted to celebrate a day. We've never been called to celebrate a day. We've been called as children of God to make a difference. Amen? So church, here's, that's your question. Do you want to make a difference? All right, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to read from the book of Jeremiah. We're going to read from chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first eight verses as our background today as we look forward to what God has for us. 
Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1 says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Then the word of the Lord came to me, that would be Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth. For you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Amen? Amen. Keep your scripture open. Have a seat. Verses 1 through 3, they give us this thought that sets the background for the, all of the book of Jeremiah, but it also sets a really important point for us today as we study this section. Verses 1 through 3 says, The words of Jeremiah... From the Lord. Did you see that God took the action? He took the action. We're going to see lots of actions that God took right here, but the thing that he did is he took the action to come to Jeremiah and speak to him. Now, it's an interesting thing. If you go back and read verses 1 through 3, you'll hear things like this. The words of God came to Jeremiah in the days of Josiah, in the 13th year of his reign, also in the days of Jehoiakim, until the 11th year of Zedekiah, until Jerusalem was taken into captivity. So we're given all of these historical time frames to be able to go. Because you notice in there it says that the Lord came and spoke, also spoke, also spoke. That's such a cool thing to remember. Because see, Jeremiah, his prophetic influence and reign, based upon the timetables that history and God's Word have given us, was well over 40 years. And you're going, Jeff, what's the point there? Well, the point is, is that we're getting ready to make a better point leaping off of that, but this original point is that God started speaking to Jeremiah, kept speaking to Jeremiah. Church, that's an important thing. We started in a Sunday school, a new series in our class, and in some of your else's classes about hearing the voice of God. And it's an important thing to understand that God speaks to his people. Some of you go, I've not heard God speak to me. I'd love to have an individual conversation with you about that. Because as we talk about it and see, it could be that one, God's not speaking to you because you don't know him. It could be that God's not speaking to you because you're not listening. It could be that God is speaking to you, but you have an expectation for it to come in one way, and God is choosing to speak to you in another way. Because if you take Scripture and you go from one page all the way to the end, God speaks. Have you noticed that? And He speaks, and He speaks, and He speaks to His people. And He does it in many, many different ways. But God speaks. And in Jeremiah's life, he kept speaking. So this morning, we're not going to focus on everything God said to Jeremiah. We're going to talk about what God said to Jeremiah first as we do this. In verse 5, we are told that God 
tells Jeremiah four things. Look at these. You can see them in there. God says to Jeremiah in verse 5, I formed you. I knew you. I sanctified you, which is another way of saying I set you apart. I have ordained you, which is another way of saying I have given you a purpose. Two key points I'd like to make after we read that. Notice in point one, notice that in verse five, the word before. Now, I'm sorry I have to do this, but I can't hold them both. But it says here in scripture, look at verse five, before I formed you in the womb. You know, there's a conversation that goes out today of when does life begin? Does life begin when it can feel pain? Does life begin at conception? Does life begin? And you know this conversation, it's out there everywhere. You know what scripture just said? Life began before conception. Life begins because God is the giver of life. God is the creator of life. God is the holder of life. And before you became an embryo, God knew you. So I believe that we don't have a point, church, that we can just stomp on and say, life begins at conception. Now, we begin to understand that life was begun at conception, but God said, before then, I knew you. And so I could make a great conversation here today to talk about how God made you with a purpose special from the moment you were conceived until now, but what makes it you even more precious what makes mankind greatly more precious is that God didn't wait for you to be conceived to all of a sudden know you and have a purpose for you. God do that before you. Church, that's an awesome point. Jeremiah 1.5 states that God does all of these things. So if you go back and look at what he said that he was doing, formed you, knew you, set you apart, gave you a purpose, ordained you. He did all of that before. That's a great point. Church, life doesn't begin at conception. Life begins with God. Point number two. God took these four actions, forming, knowing, setting apart, and ordaining purpose. But if you go back to the original language, these should be understood something like this. I continue to form you. I continue to know you. I continue to sanctify or set you apart, and I continue to have a purpose for you. This is not something that God has done. Conceived, take my hand off, and you're on your own. You know people believe that, right? God creates life, but then he just lets it go. It happens as it happens. Not God. That's not right. This is not something that God has done. It is, God, it is something that God continues to do. And in the life of Jeremiah, in verses 1 through 3, remember what it said. It said, God spoke to Jeremiah here, and then here, and then in these years, and then in this reign, and over a 40-year period of time, God continued to reveal himself and speak to and through Jeremiah. I want you to understand that wherever you are right now, God continues to have a purpose for you. He continues to want to set you apart. He continues to know you. 
and he continues to form you. Verse 6, Jeremiah responds, and he said, God, this is Jeff's little paraphrase, God, I can't do that. I'm just a kid. Jeremiah's statement right then represents a personal conflict that Jeremiah has. And I believe it represents a personal conflict that each of us will also face if you haven't already. We understand, I believe if we sat down and chatted together, we could understand that God formed you. God knew you. God set you apart. God has a purpose for you. We get to end all that, and you go, man, I wish I knew what it was. But even when we find out, how often do we make an excuse? And sometimes the excuse is not because we don't believe it. It's because we're scared of it. We don't want it. We're not sure it's outside of our control. And so we just go, God, I can't do that. Let me ask you this question. What are you telling God is your excuse for not doing the things that he wants you to do? You see, if you believe God's word, God's word said he before he formed you, knew you, set you apart, and ordained you, gave you a purpose. All of that is right there before. Jeremiah said, Lord, I can't do that. I'm just a kid. What's your fill in the blank? I'm just too young. I'm just too old. I'm just too tall. I have trouble running. I just have a bad habit. I just fill in the blank. What I believe and what I trust that the Holy Spirit is doing in this moment right now because I believe that God's Word is alive. I believe God's Spirit is here. And I believe that God is working, not through what I'm saying. He's just working in your life. What excuse are you giving God for why you are not fully embracing what he's called you to do? Well, I have a physical limitation. I have a spiritual limitation. I have an emotional, mental, you name it. You don't know how I've lived. You don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't. But can I remind you that in Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, before I formed you, I knew you. I set you apart, and I ordained you. You are not, wherever you are, you are not outside of what God can and desires to do in your life today. Unless you, like Jeremiah, go, not me, I can't do that. 
I'm just too young. Fill in your blank. Why can't you serve God? I want you to know, based upon how I read in Scripture, I've mentioned it about the video, you are precious. Not only are you precious, you are a precious, handmade, handcrafted, one-of-a-kind work of God. There is no one like you. There is no one other than you Make sure I say this correctly. I know what I want to say. You're a one of a kind. There's no one like you that can take your place if you just go, no, I can't. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too fragile. I'm too this. I'm too that. Church, I just pray that the Spirit of God right now is forcing you to see what you're putting in the blank as you say no to God. If we are pro-life, if we're pro-love, not only do I need to be trying to encourage you who are here today of your value. Church, if we are pro-life and pro-love, we need to recognize that if we are finding this out and struggling with allowing God to know, form, set apart, and ordain, what about the world? They don't even know that they're precious yet. And so we, church, must rise up. But you know what keeps us from rising up? We don't buy it ourselves yet. Can I tell you again? You are precious to God. Period. Now, whether you're yielded to Him or not, that's the second point. It's a different point. Verse 7, God responds. God said, I did all these things. And then Jeremiah said, Lord, I can't do that. I'm just a kid. And in verse 7, God responds. And a Jeff summary, God says, yes, you can. Now, you go and tear all that down. God says, yes, you can because before I formed you, I knew you, I set you apart, I've ordained you, it's already there. If you will just trust me, yield to me, and allow me to have my way in your life. God says, yes, you can. God says, one of the reasons you can, in verse 8, he says, I'll be with you. But know what God says to Jeremiah in verse 7. He says, you will go where I send you, to whom I send you, and you'll say what I tell you. Now, we need to clarify this because that sounds a whole lot like my mama when I was little. When I disagreed with what she wanted me to do, she said, listen here, boy, you'll do everything I tell you, when I tell you, and how I tell you. And you go, man. Your mama was either hard on you or sounds just like my mama. I don't know which mama you had. But I can tell you that 
God's not forcing himself on Jeremiah. He didn't say, turn around, I'm going to handcuff you, and I'm going to make you do these things. What God is saying is that if you will trust me, the one who before I formed you, I knew you, I set you apart, I have ordained you, I've got a purpose for you. If you will trust me, then you will do these things as a natural outpouring of your life. God says, Jeremiah, I've seen your future because your future is history to me. And, and to that, I'm going, Lord, I don't get it. But God is that big. And he says, you'll go where I send you because you will recognize that is the best place you'll ever want to go. You'll go to whom I send you because you will recognize that they are precious and you desire to be with them. And you'll say what I tell you because all you're going to be doing is telling them what I've been telling you that's changed your life. God is telling Jeremiah that if he will by faith trust him, that his life will be a fulfillment of all God has set up for him. Jeremiah 29, 11, God goes on to say, I know the plans I have for you, they're for your good. That's not the whole verse, but that makes the point right here. Last week, I referenced Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians 2, verse 5 says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Last week, we said it's God's desire to make us in to the image of his son. Last week in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, we were told that above all things, love one another. So this week, I want to share with you my take off of Jeremiah. I want to move forward for just a second. If you're a note taker, you're going to want to write these things down. The whole back of your call to action is blank so that you can write these things down. If you need to grab that, I'd grab it because we're getting ready to write some stuff down that I hope you're encouraged by. What I wanted to do is, since we are supposed to be like Jesus, we are supposed to have the mind of Christ, I thought, what better example for us to look at to see is, how did Jesus love other people when he came in contact with them? Scripture says, when they use this, I keyed on this one word, Jesus was compassionate. Compassionate if you define it, is love in action. Now, I attempted, for your note-taking sake, to only use examples in the book of Matthew, because that's where I started. And I cheated a little bit at the end, but you'll figure that out. But all of these first few are all from Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, verse 3. You go and read there, Jesus heals the leper. Now, lepers in that day and time were the outcast, the exiled, the inconvenient. They were so set apart that they had to tell you to stay away from them. Scripture teaches that Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus not only didn't stay away from them, Jesus came to them. And healed them. Amen. 
To be like Jesus, we must love the outcast, the exiles, the inconvenient. Now, those words, the Holy Spirit can help define who they are in your life. They're there. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, Scripture teaches us that Jesus heals the sick and the demon-possessed. Now, I've had a lot of great conversations this week because, you know, everything that's in this book, I didn't put in there. Somebody else was with me. Michael was with me. We had great, great conversations about this Scripture, about a lot of Scripture. But when we got to this point, Jesus heals the sick and the demon-possessed. Our summary coming out of this, what God led me to say was that Jesus sought to meet both physical needs, sick, and spiritual needs, demon-possessed. To be like Jesus, we have to seek to help people where they are. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus had compassion for the people and it says in here, because they were weary and scattered like sheep with no shepherd. These people could be the people that were lost, that had no known purpose at that time or had no faith. Scripture teaches that we were once all astray from God. Jesus states in this passage that the harvest is plentiful. It's interesting, when you go and read this and you keep reading past 936, this is the same place where Jesus says, we need, the harvest is plentiful. There are lots of people that are scattered and without a shepherd. We need to pray to the Lord of the harvest for those to go. In January 2022, so a little over a year ago, Rock Collins stood right here in this pulpit. You may have remembered that. He made three points. You need to pray for the lost. You need to accept them where they are. And then you need to lead them to Jesus. I'm sorry, three's not working. You got these three fingers, right? Three, you need to lead them to Jesus. Pray for the lost. Accept them where they are. Lead them to Jesus. It's a great reminder. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 32, Jesus had compassion on the people as they were hungry. You see, this is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had been teaching them for a long period of time. And this 5,000 was men, so it's probably 20,000 people we tend to estimate. And the people, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, it's late, they're hungry, it's time to send them home. You know what Jesus said? You feed them. Jesus had compassion on them. And he said, you don't tell a hungry person, go away, good luck with that. Sometimes, church, in order to be pro-life, in order to be pro-love, you just have to meet a simple physical need. Man of Missions yesterday is an example of meeting a need in the hopes that we might draw people closer to Jesus. I tell people all the time, the food that you get from us, whether it be on a man of missions or during the week, 
It's going to come and it's going to go. But Jesus, the bread of life, will come and stay and make a difference. But until you meet a need, you don't earn the opportunity to share more with them. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 11 through 13, Jesus teaches about leaving the 99 to go find the one. Simply in this teaching, Jesus is saying everybody is important to him. Everybody. We know that in God's eyes, that everyone is formed, known, that God desires for them to be set apart in Jesus and for them to fulfill his purpose. Our job, our calling, our scriptural and spiritual mandate is to go and tell people about Jesus. It's called sharing the gospel. I told you they were all from Matthew, and then I couldn't help myself, so I jumped to a couple here. In John chapter 4, write down John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well. Scripture tells us that he went there on purpose, on the way to someplace else. But Jesus makes a point to confront this woman about her faith, or lack of it at the time, and of her sin. Jesus, in that place, shares the gospel with her. She comes to believe, and you know what she does? She leaves the well and runs into town and tells everybody else about Jesus. John chapter 8, similar story, but this is about the woman caught in adultery. Jesus lovingly confronted her about her sin. You see, you don't have to be quiet about sin and need and, and, and trouble if you're pro-life, pro-love. You have to speak the truth in love. And Jesus, when, she, when he came in contact with this woman caught in adultery, he didn't just not, oh, we're not going to talk about your sin. No, he talked about it, and he said, don't. Do it anymore. But your accusers are gone, and I don't accuse you either, because Jesus came to forgive, and he told her, go and sin no more. Jesus did not allow a person's past to keep them from their God-appointed future. Now, here's where I want you to turn. Everybody turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, you get to verse 31. If you're using that pew Bible, it's on page 1144, 1144 in the pew Bible. Now, it's also going to be on the screen. It's an interesting thing while you're turning there for a second. If you noticed last week, I had we read a lot of Scripture, and I had to read it off that board back there. And I realized that you put a lot of little white letters, what is that, 80, 100 feet from me? Those aren't as clear as they used to be. So now I've got it written in my, in my book right here, but we're also going to put it up on the screen. But I wanted to read this. We talk about Jesus. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31, reads this way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, that would be the sheep, church, come, you blessed of my father, 
Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Verse 37. Then the righteous, the ones on the right hand, the sheep, however you want to call them, will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus sets a hard expectation for us. If we are going to have the mind of Christ, if we are going to be made in the image of Christ, then we must love people as Jesus loved people, still loves people. And church, that is all people. You're going, Jeff, but what? All people. All. But what if I don't agree with them? God will take care of fixing that. You just love them. Bring them to Jesus. All the change in a person's life has never been about me or you anyway. It's been about what God does through his word and through the Holy Spirit. That's why we're called to love. Love. Tell the truth and love. Now, this is a quote from Zeke, who quoted Amy Carmichael. I've heard it from Zeke a few times. We heard it on Sunday night. But Amy Carmichael said this. She said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Church, love is an action. Being pro-life means being pro-love will cause you and me to take some actions. That call to action that we gave you when you came in, that folded piece of paper, some of you still call it a bulletin. Grab it for me. Pull it out. I want you to see this right here. You guys know those people, right? That's Shane and Jennifer Lerma, daughter Royal, and new son Kingly. They are pro-life. Because this year, they adopted. Pro-life. Sometimes pro-life will cause you to think about adopting. I don't single them out as the only ones in our church that have adopted. I know there are many people that are loving people through adoption in our church. For that, I want to say thank you for your example of love. For two, church, maybe you want to consider it. Did you know that also this year, or maybe at the end of the year before, we created, we First Baptist, a body of believers that are pro-life, pro-love. We created an adoption ministry program. So if you're going, we're interested in adoption, well, I'm interested in talking to you so you can understand more about that program. Perhaps God's calling you to be pro-life, pro-love, to foster children. We have a number in our church that do that. 
It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I respect and love those that do it. Now, I hear all kinds of statistics about how many are in the system and how many are in the state and how many are in the counties around us. And I can't help because I'm a numbers guy to go, man, that's easy to solve if just every so many people would take one or two or a sibling group. Then every foster person, a foster child around us would have a home. Maybe God is calling you to take an action to foster. Perhaps God's calling you to be pro-life, pro-love by volunteering, by giving, by going, by sharing. We could be talking about first choice. We could be talking about the Dominican Republic mission trip. We could be talking about your tithe. We could be talking about any area of your life. If you want to be pro-life, you'll be pro-love. And you will allow God to move and do great and wonderful things in your life. Perhaps God, and this is when I struck that out. It's not perhaps. God is calling you, if you are a child of God, to be pro-life, to be pro-love by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you must be willing to share your faith to help someone else come to know the one who knew them before they were formed. Who formed them. Who desires to set them apart. And who desires for them to fulfill the purpose he has for them. Now here's my final note as we get ready to close. Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9. You don't have to go there. I'm going to read it to you. Just make that note on your piece of paper right there. This verse just blew me away. You see, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He had to go through a lot of hard stuff. And sometimes life was hard for Jeremiah. And he got to the point in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, where life was pretty hard. And Jeremiah made this statement. He said, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, he's talking about God, nor speak any more in his name. But Scripture goes on to say, But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. When Jeremiah came to know Jesus, God put all of this in his life, and it became this smoldering, passionate, consuming thing in his life that for a time Jeremiah goes, mm, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that. It's too hard. It's this, that, and that. I'm not going to do it anymore. God said, okay, you can try. You can try. And Jeremiah, he said, but I found out that what you had done in my life was so compelling, so life-changing, that I couldn't hold it in. And I was challenged. You see, church, if you can hold in the gospel, If you're comfortable just doing your own thing, if you can hold the gospel in, you may not have it. Jeremiah, he said, I'm not doing that anymore. And God said, okay, you can try. And it just came through him. 
That's what God changing your heart will do. It'll compel you. It becomes who you are. When you are pro-life, pro-love, through Jesus, it changes everything about you. Amen?